Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you. We figure out what your operations are. We figure out what your processes are. We figure out what your team doesn't like to do. And we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do. It's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast. My guest Thank today you for is having me. Yeah, my guest today is Alexei Alexei Shukrin and he is the tech yeah. lead in at a for Invisible uh, on the AI enablement team. Uh, they formed this quarter and their goal is to diversify our revenues and turn us into an AI giant giant rather than just an AI training giant uh, which we already That's are. Correct. So uh, welcome exactly. to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, excited to chat. Uh, I know you have a lot of ideas in the areas we want to go to. So yeah, let's do it. Yeah, uh, we could talk about a bunch of different stuff. I kind of want to just ask you a, a very broad and kind of thought provoking question potentially is what is the most interesting thing you've learned about machine learning in the last week? Oh, well, in the last week, the most interesting thing in machine learning I learned is that things can change very fast. Um, and uh, you should be careful with your dependencies because they can disappear. Even even if they are the biggest company in the field and you're like, oh my God, yeah, those guys are going to be around forever. Um, you never know. You never know. So be resilient. Uh, make sure you don't depend on others too much and uh, look for opportunities. I remember we were having this chat like uh, early um, this week uh, after the, um, how would you call it? Uh, uh, with some of the engineering leaders and um, uh, yeah, uh, the main takeaway is chaos is a ladder <laughs> it looks like um, if you use it right so yeah, yeah exciting times that's yeah. probably the main for the last week and so now I want to take it to something that is I've always had a very interest, interest in is um, mechanistic interpretability uh, and I'll just set that up a little bit as a layman. I'm not technical and Alexei is technical. And so what mechanistic interpretability is, is basically how much we know about how the inner functioning of these machine learning or any coding program. Is that accurate? Yeah, the, the, that's a good way to put it. It's a, uh, like, uh, as a disclaimer, um, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, it's an active field of research. It's super exciting. Like, I have some friends at UFT who are, like, uh, neuroscientists who are going to this field now who are not even ML people, but they're like, well, those large language models are grown big enough and they're complex enough that maybe there is something for me to apply my uh, just straight neuroscience knowledge to try to understand how they work. And I'm like, 100%, because generally speaking, what do we know about, let's say, neural networks? If you take a simple neural network, it takes a, as an input some data you give it, right? It can be an image, it can be some kind of data features, uh, but it takes some input. Mm, it, the first layer will look at the at those basic input features and it will try to start combining them into different small patterns between them, right? And then every next layer uh, builds another level of abstraction on top of it. And it gets deeper and deeper. And the idea is that you can uh, 
you can find ways to understand different levels of complexity of a problem. But now we get to LLMs and they are just massive, right? Like even like they, they use neural networks even to simply embed the words, right? You take words and you create word embeddings and you have a neural network just for that. And that's even before it went through the whole um, like GPT architecture. So there is a lot going on. And uh, how exactly it comes, uh, it, it's, it ends up being able to like reason fairly well, like we can see right now when you ask ChatGPT things that are like fairly complex problems that take like several steps to understand, they still do a good job. And uh, I don't have a good answer to that right now. So, well, then that's great. I, I like it when when people are, are um, honest about the limits of our knowledge, because there's a lot of limits to our knowledge and a lot of people aren't self-aware enough to say, oh, I don't know. Uh, and uh, and so, um, so and, and this is the perfect philosophical kind of avenue into this as well is because it sounds like we don't know what's yeah. what what is going on inside an LLM. In fact, like there is this concept of uh, emerging properties, right? So you train a model, you expect it to be able things, but it can do more. And you're like, why? And I remember for me, once I learned about the emerging properties of LLMs, I'm like, okay, this is a little scary. Uh, I started understanding Jeffrey Hinton a little more because before I remember, like even three years ago, whenever I talked to my like ML profs, many of them were saying like, ah, yeah, like people have worried about like AGI and like artificial superintelligence. And I don't even think in our lifetime doctors will be using AI. I, I heard some like very high caliber UFT profs with like MIT background say that. And I was like, no, zero chance. But in my mind, I was still thinking like, but... AGI and all of those uh, emerging properties that I didn't, I, I didn't know the term back then, but I was like, that's unlikely because everything we create in AI right now takes a lot of effort. We need people to get together, to really plan things out, to do research, to study other things, do experiments and see how can we improve it. But now we actually get emerging properties and we're like, okay, so we had this architecture we thought can do X and Y, now it can do X, Y, Z. Um, and that's a little scary, right? So what's next then? So what's the next iteration? If it keeps growing exponentially, what kind of properties are supposed to emerge? Like, are we going to be able to even track them? Um, mm. So that's uh, that's a bit of a danger, right? Mm. Uh, so that's something to think about. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And uh, there's one question I want to put in your mind, which is, uh, do you think it's sentient? Do you think the AI is sentient? But wait, I don't want to, I don't want to hear the answer before because I have another question I want to understand first, which is, um, uh, uh, the pr prior to machine learning, prior to LLMs, how well did we understand programs and mechanistic interpretability? Like in a traditional automation and in a traditional software, like do people at Facebook understand everything about the code base? Do we have full visibility into the code base? Yeah. Um, so two things. First is in terms of um, is it sentient? What is sentient is, I guess, the first question we should discuss because is a is a drosophila sentient? I mean, it is right. It's a it's a fly. It flies. It has goals. It has like some patterns, but it's the super primitive. LLM can do more than a fly can do. But at the same time, LLM doesn't make decisions by itself, right? The way they are designed right now is they respond to queries. We ask things, they respond. But if we don't ask anything, they don't do they don't exist basically. So there is that uh, limitation of them only being active in response to some stimuli that we give them, and it's very specific. Um, now, with regards to, can you repeat the second question? Yeah, like, so the second question, it? so we, we've been talking, we talked about sentience, and we can go back to that, because that's a really interesting thing. But I'm really curious as, do we already have mechanistic interpretability yeah. for pre-machine learning programs? Yeah, uh, the answer is yes, because those things were written completely by hand, right? So there was mm -hmm. no really optimization. Uh, I would put it this way, there is not, probably a single person in Facebook who knows all of it uh, because it's just massive, right? But people who work in their domains, they know their code. 
In fact, that's something interesting about uh, AI applications in um, software development now is that people start using those tools more. Like I use Copilot, for example, I use ChatGPT for some of my code. And right now, my rule is you never put anything in production you didn't check and verify yourself, which is kind of common sense, which is everybody out there, if you're a coder and you're using those models, absolutely do it, I love it. But also it's your responsibility to check everything it does. Mm -hmm. But we are getting to the point, like there are some uh, projects I saw online where people have like, on like basically AI uh, whole forms, like they have AI agents that they created that for CEO or CTO, like a chief of mm, operations and stuff like that. And you just give a description of a problem and it builds everything for you. And um, the further we go in that direction, the less we're actually going to have visibility on what exactly is going on. Um, and that's a tricky thing, right? Because uh, sure, okay, you ask it to do, to build a system that does X. And it kind of does. But how exactly does it do that? Like, are you going to actually go into that code? What if there is 70,000 lines? Uh, are you going to go and check them all yourself? You should, but it's hard, right? So uh, I would and say so before is any, lines, yeah. Is anybody building an agent or have you already seen an agent that is specifically meant to go do that job of checking everything? I think so. Uh, well, another thing. So I, I, I know that people work on that. Um, and I feel like th th that's an interesting question because to me, it's like, okay, so what's the next limitation? Like we started making tools that can write code. And for me as a developer, my dream is to not have to write code. Yes. My dream is to explain what I want and get it and not have to spend hours configuring libraries and everything like, come on, nobody likes that. That's the sad, boring part, not pretty part of coding that um, people, there are wait, so wait, wait, sorry. So don't wait, talk I have, about. I have to ask you a question. What are, what, so what, it, so if, if that world exists where you just say it, are you a programmer still? And then what is your job? Well, it's an automation, right? So it's it's a way of optimizing process. And uh, it's similar to how, like, if you look at them, like some, let's say, uh, in the industry manufacturing, uh, there are robots now. And the human operator mostly monitors them. And yeah. the human operator needs to be skilled and uh, like educated enough to make decisions and be able to spot problems and uh, uh, like treat them early on. But the most of the job is kind of offloaded or rather the boring mechanical kind of not very exciting part of the job is offloaded which is great i love that um like i love coding i, I love developing things but uh do i love getting stuck with one bug for, for hours now and i found that since ChatGPT came out last year i spent much less time debugging and much more time actually implementing things which is great a lot so so yeah going back yeah. Yeah, go for it go for it go for it yep going back to what we were talking about before for this system to be more robust we need AI tools that can verify and check code right and i know some people use uh, llms for unit test writing which is great I, I think it's a good idea and i think they're pretty good at it so combining uh like you know how we used to have like years ago um adversarial neural networks right uh, the, the early ones that we use famous generation the way the work is yes you basically have two one is creating an image and another one is supposed to tell whether this image is created by AI or it's a real image. And the idea is that the first network learns from the second network because if the second network spots that this is a, um, AI generated, then the weights needs to be readjusted. Uh, so if we can do something like that, but on a larger scale with like a code verification, that's pretty powerful. Very interesting. Okay. So talked about sort of code checking itself so is it accurate that, um, let's look into the future, two, three, five years, there are agents, they go and do all these things. We don't really have to do any more boring work. There's all the boring work that you talked about, both in the programmer level of going and finding bugs and getting stuck on bugs for like hours and stuff, that's all gone. 
And then on the other side, uh, data entry, really manual labor, clicking on various things, um, you know, like writing things and not knowing how good you are at writing and like all this crazy grunt work that goes into creativity goes away. Would you agree or would you disagree that basically then the only work that's left to be done is human relationships, navigating human relationships, learning high level concepts, and then... There's another one that I was thinking about today, but I can't remember the, that third one. Uh, but this is good, yeah. Yeah. Do you? No, do you, no, no. What else? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah. Um, so the two you mentioned, uh, human communication and high-level concepts, right? Well, yeah, I agree. That kind of makes sense. It's like everybody needs to be more of a generalist now. Uh, it's like if if you think everybody is becoming a CEO in a way of their domain, right? Like because you have those tools that you need to orchestrate to do what you want and you need to communicate with other people and other departments and everything, how this is all going to look like. Uh, like, for example, in terms of Invisible, we are working on a book report right now. And the book report is us analyzing all of the internal processes that we have to identify opportunities for AI enablement. Super exciting work. Very um uh, how would we explain it? Very kind of human level work because we need to ask people yeah. about the ideas. We ask them for data. Sometimes we need to ask them, let's say, okay, like those processes don't have descriptions, although there is a field for descriptions. So can you please go and fill it in? Just it's not going to take a lot of time, but for AI, it's much easier to give suggestions. It's a good thing, right? So we already can. So yeah, in that sense, I would say definitely. Um, it's, everybody has to be more of a generalist because the specialist things like very narrow specialist things can mostly, well, not mostly, but largely be offloaded to AI. That's and true. and so um, then let's dig into that question for your job specifically as a programmer. Do the, do you then become a system architect? Is that the only programming job left? In the future, probably. Um, or Not yet, I would say, uh, because even on AI team, not everybody uses LLMs all the time for their work. Like people do still code and, there are, and LLMs are still not perfect with code. Like, for example, if I have an idea of some block of code, I will ask ChatGPT to write me like a graph and I'll look at it and usually there will be things to fix. So mm -hmm. even now, like I still I still code, I still think, change things. So it's not completely offloaded, but it's going there, right? And one, let's say... Two years from now, honestly, two years already is kind of hard to predict yeah. at this point. But like two, three, five, honestly, I can't even say what's going to be in five. But two, three, I would say we're probably going to have to do much less coding, if any, almost at all. And then, yeah, I would say you are more of a system architect. Um, that being said, like what's interesting about this is how is education system supposed to change uh, for this, right? And like what I was thinking about is it should really probably put more focus on practice on um, letting students practice with those things and verifying how well they understand what's going on there. So kind of maybe a little more focus on lab works. I was thinking we, we, there are still certain types of like tests and questions you can ask that are not gonna change. For example, a written paper test in a classroom is still viable because you're not gonna be able to use AI there. Like you, you weren't able to use calculators or anything. Uh, so that's still there. Go um, back to handwriting. Exactly. Yeah. Assess a gun. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no more essays. Essays are gone completely. But I was thinking, like, what can we replace essays with? And I was like, well, okay, if you think about it, the goal here is to understand how well a student gets some subject, right? So I'm like, well, since we have AI, how about this? We have classrooms with laptops, like computers set up where students go, and each of them talks to a LLM, like voiced LLM, like a conversational LLM, and they talk about the subject instead. And this way, we can stand, we can standardize the way we grade them because they all use the same tool right and their goal is just like they sit down in front of a laptop there is some AI generated avatar and it says like hey so our subject is uh, llms 
So let's chat about LLMs. And then you have a natural conversation. So that still works. I think we can replace the SAIS with that. But yeah, uh, I think mm -hmm. education needs to be a little more practice focused so that when students are out of the university, they're actually ready to take those system architect jobs. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, education, we had talked about how, you know, the big thing that you learned in the last week is that, um, you know, you can't be too dependent on one one thing. And let's take that back as like, dependence on the LLM are are like I'm I'm dependent on the LLM right now when when ChatGPT went down two days ago for an hour two hours like all the things that I would normally be able to do in like five seconds that would 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 take me you know a year ago it took me like 24 hours 48 hours yeah. like to try to do to do research like the things that I'm having to do research on um yeah. and it went away and so like I had that frustration that I feel when I don't have the 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 it, on the internet, and so kids growing up today, like it's going to be like that. And what do you do? You, that is, do you think it's important to try to change the education system? And this is a big question, uh, uh, but do you think it's important to change the education system, knowing that that we we do have this great tool? I think it's really important that children use it, uh, but at the same time. It's like we don't want them to depend on it in the same way that they now depend on screens and stuff like that. That's a good question. So, like, one thing is like you can't hide it from them, right? Like, they they will be born with this thing. Honestly, I I don't want to have kids right now because it's way too like there is way too little understanding of how this affects kids. Like, there is not even enough studies of how the laptops like and like um. Uh, iPads and stuff affect kids because some parents just use it as a way of distracting the kid and just and the kid spends hours just watching some meaningless shit. I'm like, bro, this is terrible. And we don't know the effects of this, right? Yet, because they're still young. And now we have LLMs on top and chat GPT. Like, I, honestly, <laughs> I would wait with Kevin kids for like a few years just to see what how this develops. But for those of you who have kids, um, the things are that, yeah, you can't hide it from them. So you need to start thinking about, well, how do you integrate it well, right? Because like, you're right. Uh, ChatGPT goes down. I feel like a caveman from 2021, right? Like, and uh, you're like, oh no, I need to do things by hand, and <laughs> I can brainstorm things easily. Like, I need coffee, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's true. That's a fact. And just uh, it's something you, everybody needs to accept that it's reality now and start thinking about yeah. what to do about it. But yeah, 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 yeah. I think conversations yeah. about how education system should change should continue, and yeah, the emphasis should be on finding ways to make sure they get that experience that kind of isolated from LLMs. Give them experience with LLMs, make sure they know how to use it, make sure they know how to verify information and everything. They know what's chain of reasoning is because they need to know all of those cool tools and it's going to make them more productive. But while you do that, still find a way for them to get this old school proper experience because uh, you need both. I think it's going to be the same thing that I do for myself, which is I go on a 10 day meditation retreat um, mm. or, or, or like a 10 day hiking trip. I think it's going to have to be at least at the family and individual level for those that really care about their kids and want to make sure that they're not, um, totally addicted to this thing and totally mm -hmm. dependent on it is to go off a week, leave the Starlink at home, leave the iPhone at home <laughs> and go off in nature for a week, uh, and just like talk to each other. Uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Honestly, I should do that. I never tried that. I never done like proper, like a uh, sort of digital detox that people do. It almost feels a little like anxiety inducing when you think, Oh, what, for yep. 10 days, 
like yeah. without oh, no. connection to internet how yeah. am i gonna do that i'm not gonna know about things that happen in the world but yeah no it's a, it's a good idea honestly i should do that uh so i like that yeah. if, you, if you or anybody listening to this have any questions i've done a lot of it so i i, I know what it's like and there the the anxiety thing is real like there there is a there is uh if you go on if you do it a 10-day meditation retreat mm-hmm. not only is that anxiety going to come up but then there's all sorts of other existential anxieties that come up mm. you don't you don't need to, <laughs> you don't need to do a 10-day meditation retreat uh, uh, you can do it really comfortably, but there's this, there's this train of thought in, in the West right now that we, you got to go and do the me- kind of militaristic Vipassana Goenka style meditation retreat. And you can't move for three hours and you got to like do that. It is really hardcore and there's something mm-hmm. to it, but, but, um, but I suggest anybody listening to this, you don't have to do that. You just like, so what's your, yeah. well, what's your top three tips for somebody who wants to do, uh, like this Ooh, kind of good. digital detox? Yeah. So if it's your first one, maybe do it three days. Mm-hmm. Um, go on three day type of thing. Uh, the the reason why the ten day meditation retreats, the reason why they do the ten days, is because uh, it really brings you to the edge. So like after mm-hmm. th- after the three days, you've kind of gotten a rhythm, and then 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 it goes into it like a like a wave basically. So you go mm-hmm. up and mm-hmm. then you come down. Oh, that's and you cool. Go up and you come down. Uh, and okay. by the 10th day, you're, you've gone through this a bunch of times. And so you really reach places that you you've never been able to reach before, but that's like meditation, silent meditation retreat. So no mm-hmm. writing, no speaking, uh, no oh. real movement on the Goenka style. The Goenka style is really intense. There are other ones. If anybody wants any suggestions, I've researched all of this and I know all the different levels of the silent retreat, but you're asking a great question, which is like almost feels like there's a business idea here. Maybe we can do it at invisible too. Um, <laughs> oh uh, Yeah. Yeah, which is uh, which is um, basically how, how do you bring that same level of meditation retreat, but actually make it more fun? And and the only thing that you do is you disconnect from the Internet and everything yeah. else is like all in paper, all um, conversations, all all that type of thing. Um, and I, I need some more thinking. Maybe if you have any input, if that sparked any ideas, but I would I would say. All food is prepared. You could get you guys could come down in Argentina. Mm-hmm. I'm in Buenos Aires. I could actually figure this out. If we have our offsite down here, we might have our offsite down here. And in that case, we could actually do this. Oh, we should do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, would, and, at least for like a day or something. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah, if we go to Buenos Aires, there's a place up north we could we could go where it's like a hippie um, canal area where you have to take boats and you get to all these like hippie yoga centers and Ooh, stuff nice. like that. So rent out a yoga center. Um, uh, uh, no internet uh really good food really good movement classes um uh and at maybe activities and downtime i think that's that's like the lightest touch kind of like just remove the internet put a bunch of people together and see what happens basically i love it okay well if exact's listening i like that idea can we do that that would be cool yeah uh, yeah, yeah so uh, even like we we are doing this chat for like 20 minutes i looked at my screen at least twice on my phone yeah. While we are talking, right? Like, no, no. <laughs> Everybody needs a detox, right? Um, well, so, that's a no, good that's... point. That's it. So that you, you, you just said that's part of the reason I do podcasts. That's part of the reason I do massage as well, uh, either mm-hmm. giving massage or receiving massage. Uh, part of the reason I go to the float tank. Part of the reason I, I do all these different, uh, some of these different things, is it's guaranteed at least one hour away from the constant distraction machine. Because um, mm-hmm. I'll be vulnerable. I've like, I'm, I'm, I'm like dependent on all these things i think most people are i think we can it's just like a fact that most people are dependent on these things and um and but that level of clarity like i just went to a float tank and that level of clarity that i get from an hour off the screen is like really brilliant yeah 
Well, yeah, it's interesting how human brains change with this thing, right? Because uh, I was watching this uh, talk by, oh, I need to look up her name. Um, oh, I will look up and send you because she's like a brilliant philosopher who also studies like cognitive neuroscience. And she was talking about the fact that the way LLMs change human brain is that um, we don't need to put as much effort into building memory of things as we build mm. uh as we put effort into building a memory of where to find things ah, because you start rewinding your brain towards thinking like okay i don't need to remember all this information because it's always there but what i need to be able to do is i need to be able to access it whenever i need and this way you can actually touch on more information and go broader than you would have been able to do if you had to just study it by yourself but the downside of it is you are reliant on this link right so you need this connection to to the llm in order to be able to use this mindset so that's interesting uh, i like that idea and it is true because we have been going through a similar thing with like pen and paper and computers right because like writing things down is a simple way of uploading information you can look it up there and then computers bring it to a next level and llms bring it to even higher level so that's pretty cool um and it would be interesting to see how like like the mentality like human mentality changes with those things so honestly it's really very paradigm shifting kind of technology that we are experiencing. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And I want to do a little bit of experiment right now. Uh, yeah. My last few guests uh, or last few podcasts that I've done, what I've done afterwards is I've taken the transcript and I put it into ChatGPT and I've created a ChatGPT bot uh, that's trained on our transcript wow. and it can it can and I hand that out in the show notes. So I'm going to do I do that for every other podcast. Um, yeah. And uh, so I'm going to ask that GPT right now. Can you find out that person uh, that Alexei mentioned just by the information from the philosopher? So can you go and find that and remind me when I put this into the transcript uh, to remind me about that, to see whether we we, we can find the person who... who, who oh, mentioned. I love that. I <laughs> yeah. think it should. I think it should. I could give you more info. I can't remember her last name, but uh, I'll, let's stop here. Let's stop here and see if it can find her. Yeah, um, she's young. She's young. Her last name starts with V, I believe, uh, but I might be wrong. So uh, this feels uh, like a yeah. good time to pitch you what I've been doing, which is which is very interesting. It's related to what I just said. Uh, what I what I've been doing at Invisible is I've been. This is not a, on the podcast, but we record all our call, calls on Invisible, and so I've been working with the finance team. And what we've been doing is doing digital therapy sessions where because mm. they're so focused on their jobs that they don't have time to document all of the things that they want that they do, but it's really important that they document it. And so what we do is we sit down for an hour conversation and I ask them questions about their job. And then I have ChatGPT write all the documentation based off of the conversations. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was a specific reason that I want, oh yeah, because I'm trying to develop a way that I can speak with the ChatGPT in these calls like we just did but by leaving either, um, I think what I'll do is I'll create a separate language. Um, mm. So like, so like, and I would love to hear your opinion on this. It feels like we're doing the AI enablement thing right here, which is, <laughs> yeah. um, which is, uh, uh, how do I make a signifier? Because I'm not sure that it'll just get what I just said about like, can you go find that philosopher? I'm not sure it'll actually mm. come here. And so what I think I need to do is train the bot firsthand. Uh, say, hey, I'm going to be doing this. Uh, what this is the language I'll use and then mark it basically. Mm -hmm. Well, interesting. Um, have you tried? So ChatGPT has this voice option, right? Like where you can yeah. chat to it. Yeah. Um, have you tried it? 
Uh, I oh, do. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of interesting, but the thing is, it's a little slow right now. Like it needs time to think. It's not live. There was one moment that was very interesting. Um, I was discussing with it some, some, uh, oh yeah, some Israel-Palestine related things. So very complex Middle Eastern question, right? And I asked, I started asking a question about some specific historic event, and I got the date wrong. It was like mm. one year wrong, off, right? And I keep asking a question. It interrupts me. It's like, wait a second. Uh, so that date you said. It's not this year, it's that year, just so you know. Uh, shall we continue? I'm like, yeah, okay. And I love that. I was like, damn, okay, thanks. Thanks for correcting me. I had the date wrong. So that was cool. But other than that, I did try to use it in live conversation. Like when me and my friends, let's say, get together and we talk about AI and philosophy, for example, I'll put it down to listen and see if it can give an input. But it, the way it works right now is it does it in blocks. It collects text first, then it analyzes it. And it takes time and it misses things. And ultimately what happens is you're going to talk for like a minute and a half and it's going to say, sorry, this is too much. <laughs> I'm out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I like the idea. It's going to get there soon. Uh, but um, right now, at least GPT, like at least chat GPT voice thing, it's not fast enough to really like join a conversation, at least from my experience. And so this is why but the, I like the idea. Yeah. Which, well, this is why the interesting, because I just take the transcript after the, after the call is already done and I plug that into it. And it, it gets very high fidelity. So it gets everything that we've talked about. It's able to expand it. Uh, and what you just mentioned about real time, this goes mm -hmm. back into that machine learning, is the the real time nature. Because we as human beings, we're not really memory. we got a bunch of memory in our heads, but we're processing power. Like we're yeah. not only like memorizing stuff, but we're also processing yeah. all this. Yeah. And so like, how far are we away from instead of just this like bot that kind of like you have to put the context in it and how far are we away from a real time intelligence that's like uh, able close to... yeah. maybe next year honestly uh, honestly close because it's not that much you need to change and it needs to be a little faster maybe another thing is chat gpt is like the servers are overloaded they're overloaded <laughs> so maybe if you can have some kind of a more distributed computing system um that you use for that that can utilize let's say some server that's not too busy and it can do things fast and you need to split it as, as you mentioned we as humans we listen we think at the same time uh right now at the moment it does it in kind of it switches between listening thinking and talking uh so if you can have those three threads running one analyzing collecting things and in some kind of vector space that it can easily refer back to um, what we just talked about and not have to analyze the whole text but you know like the idea of vector embeddings and vector dbs the, the idea is that we can take natural language text we can embed it in those features that are built using neural networks that kind of come up with different abstract representations about and it just makes it much easier and faster to pick up topics like if you want to look up text in a database it makes it easier because instead of looking at every word you have those conceptual embeddings so if we can do something like that running um while this other model kind of com comes up with responses and voices them then it, it should be doable i think like next year maybe i'm that's my bet have you taken out so i want to save like 15 minutes but this is the last question before we go into what i want to talk about later which is sure. specifically add invisible ai enablement this is such an interesting conversation for me mm -hmm. uh, but before we go into that uh, what 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 invisible is doing in terms of ai um i want to talk about uh have you installed this thing locally on a computer um and if so is it useful to the same degree that chat gpt have and like what do you think about decentralization of these of of this and open source? 
Hundred percent. Like uh, that's one of the goals. What we want to do is we want to take a large open source model like Llama to or something of a sort and host maybe a couple of them internally because it's definitely much more security this way. I was even I was discussing with Blarder, like one of the guys uh, on the engineering yeah. team, that it would be cool to use um, ChatGPT for in, like sensitive business decisions, you know, oh. like to uh, do strategic planning and be like, here is exactly the numbers that we have, but you're not going to give that to ChatGPT. Too much risk, right? But if we had our own LM, that's, I mean, Llama is really good. I mean, sure, ChatGPT is generally a little bet on some tasks, uh, but it's good enough. It's good mm -hmm. enough to, to start using it, especially if you use chain of reasoning, which improves the performance big time, right. like long, long chain. So one of the things we are gonna, going to do maybe Q1 even uh, next year is we want to host them. In fact, that's part of my kind of uh, responsibilities for this quarter is come up with a plan. How are we going to do that? Because if we have our own internal models that are hosted that have proper security access and everything, we can ask anything. And it's it's not connected to internet. And like, I know there are tools like uh, coders Ooh. might know Copilot. Uh, coders might know Copilot. And Copilot is, you install it, for example, in PyCharm or like um, VS Code. But there are also Copilot tools for your own like computer terminal. But I wouldn't use that in conjunction with ChatGPT. But those tools all have their own LLMs you can download. So you can download an LLM, have it locally, not access to internet, and use it in your terminal. That's cool. Okay, so I just got an idea of how you do it. Because you just described sensitive business decisions uh, that, need, that we're a remote company. So how how do you actually not have it connected to the internet? We're totally remote. You mail people hard drives. <laughs> you uh, Yeah, we could do that. If we want everybody to have like a specific version that we cleaned, verified, and we want them to have locally, then yeah. Honestly, like... um. When I talk about connected to internet, um, oh, interesting. One thing, one thing I talk about is um, generally speaking, if we have a model hosted, let's say on GCP, and we have very fine, like kind of access, yeah, and we it. have we take good care of security and how we communicate with it, then it's it will be probably safe. Like if we put good effort into designing proper security practices, and when people talk to it, um, like there is, there are no breaches, we we thought yeah, through it, it, you know, we hired an uh, audit uh, from outside to look at it, and there is really no holes in there, then yeah, you can ask questions. Um, I would feel comfortable. So, and that's about, and so you, when you say locally, you're saying like locally on a cloud computer, basically. On our servers, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. within our, like, so everybody has VPNs configured and everybody has proper security in place. Uh, but also, if we want to be like hardcore, hardcore, like yeah. if you talk about like CO level decision lamb that you want to be exclusively outside the internet, I can see that. I mean, military uses those all the time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you need them completely isolated and you need to distribute them physically, most likely. Have you talked to Martin Lapierre, Lapierre yet? No, who is that? So he just joined, I think last week, um, uh, Director of AI Training, I believe is his title. Okay. Um, uh -huh. And we're going to do a podcast in January, but he uh, did, uh, he and he told me we can talk about it publicly. He said he he, he, were, he did it for the military. He did what you're just talking about for the oh, military. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. Can you send me a link once it's done? Yeah, 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 <laughs> I yeah. want to hear that. Yeah. Sure. Oh, I should talk to that guy. Oh, yo. Okay. I'll write. I'll talk to you later after we're done. <laughs> yeah. I need to Bro talk to this guy. ChatGPT, remind me to send a message uh, to Alexei about Martin Pierre. No, that's interesting. Um, I have a lot of friends who work in military intelligence. And like a fun fact about me, I, I was a startup founder before I joined Invisible. And my main income source last fall was I was working as a close protection officer. So I was working as a bodyguard while working on a startup because I was making no money in my startup. So I actually worked 
Toronto Film Festival uh, 2022 uh, as a bodyguard on a red carpet. That was fucking amazing. And uh, yeah, like there is a, a lot of talk in military too about all the different ways to apply. Yeah, and they've been using it for a while, but yeah. to chat with someone who's done it in practice, I am 100% in. <laughs> cool. Uh, okay, super interesting. So yeah, let's just keep on going, diving and drilling into... Well, yeah, can you t explain what your role is at Invisible and like what you were hired to do and what you're planning on doing and, you know, making yeah. sure to not mention anything about customer data, but we're pretty transparent about about every uh, things that go on in Invisible. So you can be pretty open here. Sure. No, Invisible is honestly in a great position. That's my opinion. There is a lot of things to be done, but it's really well positioned in the sense that there are a lot of unique things about Invisible that other companies use, right? Like um, we have clients because they want all this human labor that they can use to fine tune build models. And we build massive amounts of data sets with that. So the, the work Invisible has done in the past few years really puts it in a unique position. But now, the how do we go from that, from all this expertise and data that we collected and this network of agents we have to actually leveraging all of it into building our own models? And maybe, sure, maybe we're not going to train our own foundational models and we will use other lens, but that's fine because it's just a tool. There is just so much you can build on top of it. That's kind of the idea of AI enablement team. Uh, so I'm the tech lead for this team. So essentially my job is to be making ultimately uh, like final decisions about the architecture, system design, and um, kind of sometimes like helping my team overcome the obstacles uh, and uh, make decisions day to day. Uh, the team right now is three people. We expect it to grow significantly next year. And uh, right now, so since the team formed this quarter, we are focusing on deliver delivering some kind of proof of concept results. Like we have a main project that we do for Door DoorDash Manias. Um, and the idea is that we want to completely replace the vendor DoorDash is using right now to do this initial kind of uh, image uh, to um, text tasks and uh, replace it with our own tools and our own agents and be like end-to-end -end pipeline. So that's a way of us to prove that we can do it, build some infrastructure about it. And a lot of work that goes right now, including the book report, is in identifying next opportunities. So the things we want to do is, A, we want to build the proper infrastructure around our LMS, and not just the LMS, but all the ways we want to use AI and visible, make sure we have proper versioning, proper ML ops, um, mm. And, uh, you know, getting to this, some people were using the term IQ as a service. Uh, so building that internally so we can use it within the company, but also um, building new tools for clients. That's the idea. I think the target is for us to be making 50 million revenue by 2025. Uh, right now we make zero. So that's going to be a fun year. Oh, um, specific, and you're talking specifically AI enablement. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so that's the goal. Okay, um, what is MLOps? MLOps is essentially um, software practices that you would use in ML that make sure you build robust systems that can scale, that you can monitor, that you can modify. So essentially, um, there is DevOps, like the development uh, ops in software development in general. Um, and MLOps is extension of that, extension of that um, specifically designed for ML. And um, it, some of the things that you would, for example, you have in MLOps that you wouldn't have in regular DevOps is like token usage and hallucinations. And uh, the way you assess performance of LLMs would be some different from the way you would assess performance of some more traditional software tools. So building infrastructure around that, that would allow us to um, iterate, brainstorm, come up with ideas, be robust, scalable, all of that. So that's MLOps. And so coming back to that mechanistic interpretability, um, that mm -hmm. might be a big kind of challenge in ML ops that doesn't exist in DevOps because you you talked about DevOps or de that the former paradigm of computing 
didn't have mechanistic interpretability or it had full mechanistic interpretability. And now we're maybe like what, but if you were to estimate how much mechanistic interpretability. Oh boy. I don't even know about that. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, um, 1%. Well, that's an interesting question. No, more than that. More than okay. that. Yeah. Uh, because we, we, I mean, we do, we know, we do know the architecture we build it. Yeah, um, and if you ask a person who like, I don't know exactly the architecture of GPT-4, they don't quite release it, but um, people who work with it closely, they have de definitely better insight in decision-making than we do, but still, like I was uh, I was listening to the Jeffrey Hinton talk at the collision conference in Toronto uh, earlier this year, I went here, where he defined six dangers of AI. Mm. Uh, that's an interesting subject. But he was also saying that he, as a godfather of AI, is not 100% sure uh, exactly why it can reason the way it does. So not 1% more, mm. but uh, how much is hard to tell. I would say my range would be anywhere from 30 to 60, 70, maybe. Wow, interesting. So you just sent, made me think about something. So emergent capabilities. We have mechanistic interpretability. We have limited mechanistic interpretability because we've created something with emergent properties. And for the listeners, the audience, Emergent tech, emergent emergence is a concept usually uh, from evolution, which says that uh, things wildly uh, uh, you create some new function out of a whole bunch of different. Yeah, and new function right? might pop up that you didn't initially plan for, and that's very LLM thing. We didn't really see that before with ML because it was simpler, more basic, and it's yeah, and it's kind of the idea of mechanistic interpretability and uh, of emerging properties, they're very intertwined. They're mm -hmm. kind of two mm -hmm. sides of the same coin in a way. It's like, all right, so some things happen we didn't expect. Why? Well, we need mechanistic interpretability to tell, yeah? Uh, so it's kind of this, uh, they're connected. Um, and, and so and so, emergence, we've got this emergent thing, and because of that emergence, it might be like a human being. And I guess this brings us back to the sentient question, the intelligence question is that, we don't understand consciousness. We kind of have some theories about it, but we really don't know. Um, and we're now creating something with consciousness, not necessarily with consciousness, but with intelligence. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah. It's like consciousness is an emerging property, right? Like over yeah, in yeah, the human yeah. neural network, almost yeah. in a way, right? Like human yeah. neural network builds, we ended up being homo sapiens sapiens and we have this emerging property of consciousness. But at the same time, like I look at my dog and it has character. It has thoughts, it has ideas. It Sometimes it wants this, sometimes it wants that. Like it has a character too. So it's also sentient, right? So yeah, like when we were discussing making those bots that can support a live conversation, like that's even closer to the sentient, right? Like, I mean, this is getting to the point when I'm like, uh, like this is almost, I, I'm, I'm like ready to say it's sentient and it's going to pass a Turing test 100%. Like you will take, yeah. take those things and put them in some Reddit chat and nobody's going to be able to tell. Yeah, and we still don't know what sentience is. And this is the, we can't say what sentience is. And I would say that there is a difference between sentience and consciousness. Because I, yeah. I think that the fly is sentient. I would argue that the fly is not conscious. That's I would argue point, that, yeah. that everything outside of a human being, maybe another couple of animals, maybe a primate has consciousness. But I think there's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot that could be uh, debated about what yeah. I just said. Cause like maybe no, it fuck does have consciousness. No, that's true. Like, and the thing is, people can have slightly different definitions. So yeah. it could be like a spectrum. Like they might not be necessarily a strict definition, but like here is a line where you kind of get into consciousness, right? It's like, think of yourself, like uh, the way I think about uh, like, um, like being sentient, being conscious all together like combined is you don't just analyze the world and 
what mm. happens in the world around you, you think about what your position in the world is. So you are conscious of your existence like uh, and that's i think something that really sets things apart and once and we kind of like so lm's like chat is trained to say well i am just an ai i'm like a little model so i'm not supposed to give you like a medical treatment results or anything uh although you can still write team it very easily to do it that's but um uh but uh yeah um is that conscious sentient yeah that's a hard question i don't yeah. know you just nailed the nailed the 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 sort of meditator's definition of consciousness as now as well, which is self-reflective awareness. So not just being aware, but having the ability to turn that awareness from the external world back on the internal world, and 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 like like in a um, recursion. Uh, Maybe so- that's what we should do. Maybe we should take an LLM and isolate it from internet. And but LLM that that's supposed to think and listen, and then we isolate it. And let and let it sit for like a bit. And what what is it going to think about and talk about to itself? Uh, if we just leave it disconnected from like we do sensory deprivation LLM. If we get one that's constantly supposed to think and listen and to respond, um, that's is it an ethical experiment? Idea. I don't know, <laughs> but it did would be we, cool to do, right? Yeah. Did we just come up with a with a way to to make the thing conscious? Maybe. Well, or, or like I would say, if if somebody tries to do that, I would put. Um, I would slow down the iterations, like because you need to control what's going on. Uh, you don't because it thinks really fast, yeah, right? If you just yeah. let it go at the max GPU speed, or like you, you have no idea what's happening there. But if every iteration you can kind of stop and analyze, like what changed, that's a little safer for both you and the model, right? Because if we get if we're talking about possibility of like AGI and sentence sentence LMs, then you want to be ethical. You don't you don't want to put it in a position where you. Treat it like how people, some people treat animals. You know, <laughs> you don't want that uh, because it's bad enough. Um, so the, yeah, but it's a so, cool experiment. Well, and let's 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 think it all the way through. And either and could, would it be accurate to say that you're an ML researcher? Well, yeah, I did my PhD in essentially like um, applied and machine learning. Um, so yeah, you can say yeah. So. And so, how would we set up an experiment? Regardless of commercial, commercial, because this is what my, what I, my understanding of OpenAI, what they did is they just got a bunch of researchers who have been thinking about this question of like AGI and keeping it in a way like what you just said about being ethical about how we bring it into the world. Um, and they've just been throwing stuff at the wall for the past mm-hmm. five years and then something randomly hit. Um, mm-hmm. And and so setting up a research experiment about giving sensory deprivation to an LLM in order to see if it can self-reflectively think about itself. How would we go about testing that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, remember we discussed MLOps. MLOps is going to be important here, right? Because you want to set up good visibility. You want to understand, um, let's say it adjusts its own weights. Let's say you, you make a model that can learn, or, or okay, sure, it doesn't adjust its own weight. That's not true. But um, let's say it uses a vector DB to think of what it said before. So, okay, so you can have control over those things. Like every iteration, when it kind of goes through the thinking process and response in this one cycle, you can look at what changed, what got added, um, and which direction is going, right? Um, so something like that comes to mind because this allows you to monitor 
like the, the, the kind of the direction where, where it's thinking and what kind of information it comes up with. Uh, it would be interesting to see the rate of hallucinations. Like, let's say if it starts talking about to itself about some subject that we know it's a real subject, we know they're prone to hallucination, right? So is it going to start brutally hallucinating immediately like and just fall in this hallucination trap or not? Um, so that's something we can probably monitor. So yeah, I would say set up a good vector DB. That's probably a very important thing to do. But other than that, like, Sure, like look at the all the basic things like talking users, like latency, like how long does it take for it to think? Like, does it start taking longer to respond to its own things and or not? So good MLOps, and then between each iteration of this cycle, um make some stops to assess what's happening. Yeah. And you can maybe even use another LLM to assess it to give you a digest. Um so oh, yeah. wait, wait. So let's go into that. Can can we solve mechanistic interpretability by building an LLM that's focused on solving mechanistic interpretability? Well, that's a great question. I don't yeah. know. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe we can get. Well, okay, sure. Like if we set it up properly, if we use a model that itself not sentient but designed specifically to look for those patterns and come up with explanations for why things happen, and we apply it to a model that maybe is more sentient or like just any other model, and try to um like have them understand each other. It's like something cool about LLMs and the way they think is because we we have those vector DBs, we can give access for other LLMs to what this LLM is thinking about, right? It's like, imagine wow. you were in sensing deprivation tank and you had a like a psychologist who was in your brain at the same time. Like, I mean, a little scary, but also kind of sick. Uh, so like we can probably set up something like that with an LLM. Okay, well, and let's go down that rabbit hole. Uh, so um, most people think that the thing is going to happen with Neuralink, that there's going to be a chip inside of our brain and such. But I've been reading some things, and I think you're probably you have some some insight into this that we don't even need a chip in our brain. We just need an MRI um, that will uh, that will re recognize our, the brain waves, and we can do it completely passively to get context from our brain inside the machine. Is that accurate? Well, ish, I would say, yeah. I mean, because uh, from what I saw recently, like the research that uses kind of brain function to try to understand what a person is thinking about is progressing quite a bit. Like I remember people, there was this uh, Pink Floyd songs that somebody was able to recreate in their head. I'm like, wow, this is wild. Uh, and uh, so we are moving in that direction and um, installing some kind of a neural link or device that can read your brain could potentially open opportunities, but increases risk in the sense that if somebody yeah. gets, gets access to the device, they literally read your brain, literally. Uh, it's like, are you ready for that? <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm, I'm uh, totally I'm, skeptical. Okay. I'm 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 pretty. I'm I I don't think I'll make that jump, and I'm scared of of being sort of forced to make that jump as well. Mm -hmm. And the, the fact that there's a passive way of doing it kind of freaks me out. Um, what do you think? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty hard to do it full time passively. Like, yeah. or I, yeah. I don't think you can do it with a with a phone. Like, I don't think your phone can read your brain. I mean, honestly, at this point, who knows? But I don't <laughs> think so. Like, from what I know about the system, it doesn't seem like it. In well, silence, like a neural link, yeah. Going to MRI also, yeah. like, sure, maybe they can read yeah. something from your brain in an MRI, but whatever, read it. Like, I mean, an MRI, all, all I'm thinking about is I want to get out of here and go have a hamburger. Like, uh, that's probably as much as you'll get from it. Um, so there, I saw a picture of the of the of the machine that they're they're using to do this thing, and it was. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I looked it up. Have you ever seen the meme of the Wojak meme, the NPC, uh, the, the 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 It's just a, a drawing, uh, a, um, a line drawing. Um, if anybody wants to look it up to get what I understand, I'm looking it up right now. Yeah, it's called Big Brain Wojak. Um, and so, if you want to understand what I'm talking about, go look up 
Google big oh. brain. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so there's a huge, there's, I'll explain it. So there's a huge brain. The guy's got a huge brain that descends behind him and then he's sitting on his brain and he's just got this huge brain, but he's also an NPC. And so he, he looks really funny. Um, and so I went and looked up the specific technology they're using to, to, to read the brain waves. And it looks exactly like that. It looks like a chair <laughs> with this giant white thing over their head. That's just like, like six feet tall. Uh, and so it's like a, a thing and it's just like only around his brain. Um, and so I thought that was really funny, but, uh, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> accurate, right? Like those things yeah. kind of converge to the same concept, right? Well, yeah, yeah. That's where we are. <laughs> That's where we're at. And nobody, we have no mechanistic interpretability into the machine and we have some, very little mechanistic. Some, yeah. We have some, but okay. we, we have work, homework work to, to do. do. And yeah. we got to be careful with what we build, like be responsible yeah. for it, yeah. uh, for it and for what it does to you, for what it does to other people and to itself. So be mindful of those things. Next stage is conscious interpretability, consciousness interpretability. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but that's what people talk about the dangers of super intelligent AI is that once it starts improving itself so hard, so fast that we can't really understand what it's doing. Like if, if you think about the chess engines, the chess engines, the top chess engines, um, they are so much infinitely better than even the like Magnus Carlsen that um, no, nobody can really understand why they make certain moves. Like, I mean, you can sometimes decipher like, okay, well, here it looks like they're trying to get control of this area of fucking whatever. But um, generally speaking, when you have like the top two top level um, chess engines fighting each other, it's super entertaining to watch, but no one can exactly say what why they do those moves. And imagine that, but with kind of LLM level AI that can self-learn, self-improve. And so what exactly is it doing? You don't know. So that's, I guess, the danger of it. Yep. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And um... Uh, if any, uh, you know, person at Invisible, person who's interested at Invisible uh, or interested in Invisible wants to find out more about you or your work, anything you want to share with them? Uh, you can look up my name. Um, I did get myself, uh, well, not myself, Google did give me this name, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, Verified. This, uh, like this little uh, section in the right, what is it called? Like a, it's a knowledge graph. Uh, item i think uh -huh. uh, that's what they're called so you can look at my name you should see my picture and all my social networks so yeah reach out uh always down to chat um love mentoring people love doing podcasts like this it's always fun to chat with like people like you Stuart. super exciting right like so many exciting things to talk about so many cool ideas we just come up with invisible needs to do at least one day uh detox oh can we put a neural network in a sensor deprivation tank yeah <laughs> i love it this is great yeah, yeah. Uh, the answer is yeah let's do all of that let's do all of it yeah yeah uh, so go look up Alexei Shkurin, uh, yeah. uh, and I'll uh, spell the last name S-H-K-U-R-I-N. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Stuart. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.